All right, welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. Very excited today, uh, and I know I say that every episode, but today is even more excited than usual uh, because we have uh, someone that I've been uh, following for a long time on Twitter, uh, watching talks from and uh, reading books. Uh, this is Faris Jakob. Welcome. Hello. Uh, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Ferris, I th- it feels to me like the people who listen to the show probably already know who you are from. Uh, I knew you from Twitter going back a long ways. I read Paid Attention when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but would you, for those who don't know, uh, would you give people a quick uh, download on who you are and, and what you've been up to? Absolutely, yes. Um, let's start now. Um, I'm Ferris. Hello. I'm, I'm, as you pointed out, the author of a book called Paid Attention, which is about the nature of human attention and how advertising needs it, breaks it, uses it, and how the internet changes that. Um, and with my wife, I have co-founded a consultancy, a nomadic consultancy called Genius Steals. So for the past five years, we have lived uh, on the road uh, entirely itinerantly, moving from client to client, working with agencies and brands on a number of sort of strategic and innovation-like projects. Prior to that, we spent five years in New York. Uh, my career is predominantly advertising. Um, I was the founder of a small agency in New York under the MDC banner or sort of holding company. Uh, before that, I was chief digital officer of McCann Erickson in New York. And before that, I spent many years at Naked in London, uh, Sydney, and in New York. Awesome. Great, great background. And, and oh, I have so many questions for you, but we do have a topic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold myself to the topic today. Okay. Uh, we are going to talk about the way that uh, universes are created and shaped in fiction and why those things keep popping up and growing all around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you brought up this idea for this topic, I thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be a good one. This is going to be a really interesting uh, conversation. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's start at the top. If we write just now. I think when we were talking about this a while back, you said you started the whole thing by saying, what about Star Wars? I did. Uh, and, and then and that's kind of where I, that's one of the biggest and most famous ones, especially right now with the newest uh, film coming out. Yes. Um, so thoughts on that universe in particular as an archetype? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel I should apologize slightly for my lack of preparation in the sense of I haven't yet seen the most recent movie. I mean, it's only been four, five, oh, four days. Yeah, neither have I, okay, so good. don't worry about no it. No spoilers, okay. you guys. No spoilers. Feel free to yeah. listen. <laughs> um, but so I, I think, yeah, so we can talk about that as a sort of paradigmatic idea, right? So when you first see the first Star Wars movie and it opens uh, as episode four, and it references things that happened before and after and outside the film. You can already see that Lucas had an extraordinarily expansive ambition. Um, right. he, he had already begun to build this idea that this narrative would exist within a much larger universe. And I think at the time it was pretty compelling. But we could probably start a little bit earlier because it'll converge with Marvel at a certain point about eight years ago when they bought it, right? Right, right, right. So... Um, I have a thesis as to why universes are so prevalent now, but I guess my interest in them predates all of that because I'm I'm a geek, you know, of, of a certain flavor. Are and, you a comic book guy? Yes, I'm a huge comic yeah, book guy. Okay. I used I was, to be a very big comic book guy. Um, in fact, my parents are selling their house in London uh, finally, and um, the biggest issue, all I have left really there, apart from memorabilia, is x number of thousand of comic books in my last sleeves that need a good home so if anybody listening wants to buy a oh, lot man. of comics by the way you feel free to reach out because i can't really store them any longer um but yes comic book <laughs> universes were a big thing so the marvel universe was my kind of particular thing um i was very interested in that and how that kind of i guess to begin with it's simply because it's such a satisfying idea to my brain that these things interconnect right and right. if, if you read my anything I've written about creativity or ideas, I'm all about connections and combinations and finding patterns in different places. And so I always really liked right. this idea that universe existed outside of the, the single story, the single characters, and that, you know, you get this kind of hit of recognition along with a sort of blast of the new when a character appears in a different, you know, comic book or whatever, right? That sort of intertextuality to use a much more... Um, 
the more pretentious way of saying it, but essentially it's intertextuality, right? <laughs> what, what, yeah, taking my English degree and applying it backwards to my childhood, I, I was already I'm interested in intertextuality. Um, and so I was thinking about that. And then, and then, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars are, are similar kinds of ideas. There's something very satisfying to the geeky mind that you can sort of read encyclopedias of these fictional universes that sort of hold together in some um, ongoing way, you know? Mm-hmm. In fact, I had a friend, uh, Ivan, who was at MIT on their future of the media masters that the, um, uh, that, that, that put together the Futures of Entertainment, the FOE conference. And he, at one point, was going to be that guy at, at Lucasfilm who sort of looked after the, uh, the canon, you know, the one person who keeps track of all the different planets and, and um, um, characters and storylines and species and That's whatever. Huge. Yeah, That's a, yeah. That's a, now, now Reddit does that for you. Right, exactly. But it's sort of one of those ultimate geek positions, you know, to own the universe in your head. So and that what was do you there. think – let's talk about the that exact part of the universe where uh george lucas sells his company to disney yeah and day one disney says okay everything after this point is no longer canon and they get rid of all the novelizations Uh and all of the i think the whole comic book universe uh, extension was scrapped as well yep and the, the fan uproar of holy crap all these things that we have been reading about and obsessing over are canceled. What, what does that mean? So I think that is a huge thing. And, and I think um, Marvel had a very similar problem that at a certain point after 50 years of ancillary storytelling and character development and many, many hands touching the body of the universe, it began to struggle under its own weight. So the Marvel universe, the X-Men universe, the, the, the Star Wars universe got so big that no one could really do anything new without contradicting pre-existing storylines that had happened in the future or the past. And so they sort of backed themselves into a corner a little bit because um, no, no one was capable of writing for the, the universe anymore because no one could know enough about the universe apart from that one guy who owns the canon to right. actually do that you know, without making mistakes. So it became too, um, too weighty, too much difficulty. But yes, there's a huge kickback from fandom. And, you know, I'm sure we'll probably get into kind of the nature of fandom. Um, And Henry Jenkins, obviously, is kind of one of the great scholars about fandom and the transmedia kind of concept, which is partially about universe development, I think. Um, But fandom is very possessive often. And if you've spent a great deal of effort memorizing every lineage and storyline in the same way that a sports person would memorize baseball stats from the early parts of the baseball universe... It kind of makes sense, actually. Yeah, why not? Yeah, and you get attached. You get attached to that knowledge. I, I yes. can remember, I haven't read comic books uh, steadily for a long time. I pick up trade paperbacks or series here and there. But yeah. when I used to read them, especially Marvel, or uh, DC has the same thing, I can remember being confounded when I would get to a page in a an X-Men or an Avengers where it's like, see issue 429 <laughs> of the original Hulk yes. and thinking, oh, now I have to go track that thing down to understand what that means. Yes. So that making it's you know the crossing the chasm model, that kind of early yeah. strategy model. Jeffrey Moore talking about how in technology adoption curves, it isn't simply just early adopters through to laggards. There is this chasm where there are right, two right. distinct typologies. Right, that geeks like things that are hard because <laughs> they want to test things, break things. They want to know how they're being involved. They want to you know have encyclopedic knowledge of certain categories and, and, and demonstrate that knowledge. Right? So geeks in every category, be it technology or, or universities, have a different set of needs than the broader audience. And the challenge of um, the weight of the universe, especially the Marvel universe, which got very complex before right. the sort of filmic reboot, essentially, that happened, which rewrote the comics backwards, basically. You know, Nick Fury became a black guy backwards right. in history, in, in sort of history, time, whatever, universes. So yeah, um, there wasn't enough ways in. They didn't, they just had closed themselves off to the the mass audience, you know, and I think that's part of the challenge of telling stories in a way that's, in a similar way to Pixar, telling stories that both adults and children can get at different levels. The great challenge of universe storytelling is to not make it just an homage, just a parody, or just a set of geeky references to trigger fanboy screams but also to make it a story that exists in its own right that appeals beyond just reference and intertextuality. 
Yeah. And if we can think about the other side of it, you know, a big um, part of making films now is to try to come up with something that's a tentpole that's going to be able yes. to be a, a property that's a series that has a universe. Yes. And I, and I wonder, I actually told my kids, hey, we're going to sit down and we're going to read Harry Potter together. Nice. And my daughter was like, I don't know, dad, that's just a lot to, to dig into. Mm-hmm. And she knew that there was six, seven books and she knew that then we would probably watch the movies. And she was just thinking like, I don't know if I can handle all that, that stuff. And which, you know, she didn't use the word canon, but I was kind of thinking like, I think she's got ha- canon burnout. I think she's <laughs> got too many things in her brain. And yeah. she was like, no, no, no more. I'm, I'm closing the, I'm closing the shop here. I think that's a very interesting observation that at a certain point it becomes difficult to enter a fandom or a universe because there's so much history you feel you have to work through. You know, it's like trying to watch right. the wire. It's like trying to go back and watch the wire now. You're like, it's quite a lot of it, isn't there? That's going to be that's a, that's quite a big commitment. <laughs> and the pressure to like it is so high. Yes, also. I mean, my wife just I mean, read Harry Potter se- series in the last two weeks. She reads very fast. Um, but even she's like the beginning is much more fun at the very beginning where you're sort of it's light and it's short. And even you can see it in the, in the distribution of pages in the Harry Potter books, right? By the end, the books are like four or five times the length. They're massively complex storylines that are weaving together different elements and such, you know. Yeah, the first one's pretty breezy. It is very short and very, yeah, breezy. But yeah, that yeah, feeling, but of, I, that feeling of do I want to commit to something this serious? I think it plays to a lot of people and it's kind of part of the barriers, the previous barriers to, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek, I suppose. And do you think the, the recent, so they rebooted Star Wars mm. or they didn't reboot Star Wars, but they extended Star Wars. Yes. They rebooted Star Trek and then they told us, no, it's not a reboot. It connects to the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Right yes, exactly. And I think that, do you, that confusion is yeah, interesting. Yeah, go. No, go on. Do you think that, that those relaunches are ways in for people or are they more daunting for, I mean, obviously for Star Wars, I can see through ticket sales that it's not daunting at all, but um, for new customers to go back in time and watch the original Star Trek series, for example, or download um, the next generation to try to understand. The TNG, you know, here's my hot take. TNG is the best Star Trek by far. It's just brilliant. That, Picard is, that is the hottest uh, take. Picard is by far the greatest captain. Anyway, yeah, he's uh, he's hard to not like. He's, yeah, he's, he's amazing. Um, and Data is the best version of that character, which appears in all the seasons, which is the emotional, right. whatever. But um, yes and no, right? So I think they are designed to be ways in, in a sim- and that it can be taken too far, right? If you keep rebooting something, then people start to lose some relationship to the universe i feel like so transformers movies have been rebooted so many times now that they're not really even films anymore they're sort of i don't know exactly what they are quite fun visual spectacles but i don't know if they're i don't know universe building in the same way no, but, so i don't one, know one, what they're doing no i'm not sure either but one of the but they do they, they hang together you know the voice of optimus prime is the same guy who did the voice of the cartoon optimus prime so there's this sort of right. they have this continuity but it's sort of It's a bit broken. I do think they're designed to be ways in. I think one of the challenges that Marvel has faced in recent years, because if you look at the Marvel comic sales are down quite precipitously in the last couple of years, which is very weird considering how big Marvel movies currently are. You would see that as being a massive advertisement for for the comics, right? The challenge being... I think they've turned into toy sales. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's fine too. I'm sure Lucas had a very similar point of view. Toys are very profitable pieces of things. And, you know, Marvel was bankrupted and then was bought by a toy company, right? So Marvel Mm -hmm. Marvel in 1996, I think, went bankrupt. And their toy vendor, their exclusive partner, um, basically bailed them out and bought them. And so that's where Avi Arad came from. Right, all, all those dudes that sort of masterminded the Marvel Studios thing years later were all toy guys who basically had yeah bought. they understood yeah exactly they understood ancillary marketing and um, revenue streams. <laughs> but I think well, let's this- go back to your point about the comic book. Yeah, because it seems like they sacked the the writers' room and now they don't have anybody there minding the ship for the future. Yeah, that's which is where they get all the great material from. I agree. It's very unfortunate because they're still. There's 50 years of, of like, I guess, pre-existing, pre-Marvel film canon to pull from. But the stuff they're doing now all ties into one 
um, short series, the Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War series, right? Which was um, Jim Stalin and George Carlos in like early 90s, maybe. It's, I, I have them all. They're, they're very good. And yeah, then they're, they're, they're massive space opera scaled things, right? They, they really play to this idea that the universe is huge and, and interrelated because they're one of those set pieces, you know, the crossover set pieces that Marvel used to do, um, which came back like with, you know, Civil War and that kind of stuff. Right. But so Marvel recently has been rebooting itself endlessly, right? In order to try and get new readers, it keeps launching new versions of Spider-Man and then killing them like a year later. I think that kind of that's disrespectful <laughs> to the audience. You know what I mean? It's really and, and they change to your point writers and artists a lot. So even I found it to be honest, I, I veered away from those comics even as much as I like um, the history of them. I end up reading old X Men if anything at all. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in um, the, the creator owned universes that I'm sure we can get to because there's some fun stuff happening there. Um, no, yeah, you're going into something really. So, so I, when you were saying uh, it's disrespectful and how uh, universes reboot, and you were mentioning the Transformers, I wrote yeah. down Spider Man. Yeah, I was actually thinking of the Fox film property version of Spider Man that is on its fourth Spider Man. Yeah, not yeah, not the comic book, but the comic book. You're dead on. They've rebooted too, and they've been shedding readers because we we want continuity. We we crave it. Yeah, and. These kinds of myth structures do allow a certain degree of flexibility, but what got really boring with the, the Fox version of Spider-Man is they would reboot it to sort of get a younger actor who was less expensive, essentially, or whatever, and then tell the origin myth again and again. And you're like, nobody needs to see the Spider-Man origin myth ever again, right? That's just, no one needs that. Which is why it was great when they snuck him into Avengers, having done some sort of negotiation on that tip, right? They just, there he is. It's like, you know who he is. He's Spider-Man. Don't worry about it. it. You're awesome. like, yeah, it was yeah. awesome. And it, because it wasn't pandering to like, I have to explain from the, from the year dots how this whole thing works. It's like, we assume some knowledge, which is nicer in a way, right? Yeah. But yeah. Th- that was a relief. But then I, I do think the X-Men uh, franchise under Fox had some high points and some wavering points. And that when they started to really mess with the timelines, it got a lot more interesting again, frankly. It got a lot more fun for me when they started playing through different you know, times. Absolutely. And again, that's a famous, the Days of Future Past is a famous story that it they is. quasi brought back. I mean, it's not true to the, it's not, it goes off book, but it's still a really interesting part of the universe. Yeah. And, and it's a story that was two issues long in X-Men. Right. <laughs> I think, yeah, Chris whatever his name was, the great X-Men writer, Chris... Um, Chris Claremont. Yeah, Claire Claremont, I think, and Byrne did it in two, two issues. But we'll wrap up some time travel stuff, get the, get the, uh, the Sentinels in there, don't worry about it. Um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, all these reboots, basically, they're driven by a strategic imperative, which is that they own this property, they've paid for it. Like, you know, X-Men, Fox bought X-Men rights for $1.5 million when um, Marvel was really struggling basically, and needed a little bit of cash. So that was a very cheap piece of IP to buy <laughs> that, that served them wow. very well for quite a long time, you know? I think, do you think they did okay on that investment? I mean, I think they probably did fantastically well on that investment. Um, <laughs> so because that, and that gets us down to kind of, I guess, the point, or not the point, but like one of the thoughts about why universes are now so obvious and what, what the strategy behind it is and what Marvel's strategy was as soon as Iger got in charge, which is the same thing, right? He's, Iger's whole approach to Marvel has been to acquire universes. Right. Everything he does is buying. Every big deal he's structured, and they're the biggest deals Marvel has ever done, including the most recent one with Fox, you know, which is buying the Avatar universe, the Simpsons universe. He's buying massive amounts of IP. Right, extendable IP. Yeah, at, at sort of... Exactly, extendable IP at kind of premiums, but that he can lock in audiences for twenty years, and I think that's the point. So much. Yeah, and you wonder, you wonder how much further it can go. You know, is um, Percy Jackson and the, you know, the, <laughs> is that whole series like where are there new universes that we should be looking for? Well, or do you I th- think I think new ones. Disney are- is trying to. Yeah, go. Well, so the, the new ones are slightly harder because new depends where they come from, right? And how, how much they cost. So it, to me, it's like how big is the audience that it brings to the table? Because, you know, my basic thesis is something like post the year 2000, when you can guarantee that every single person you, you met anywhere in the world had watched Friends because they did. 
right. when, when culture had become monoculture from like, you know, not monoculture. Monoculture was a function of mass media. It created this monocultural system where everyone watched MTV or was aware of it to some degree. And, you know, Friends existed in, and Friends was a universe in its own right, um, kind of anyway. When fragmentation began in 2000, it led us on this path towards um, two things, which is a lack of mutual references, right? The more fragmented media is, the more fragmented culture becomes. And because yeah. of that, we don't have things to talk about with each other anymore. We, we didn't write shows at the water cooler we could discuss because everyone's on different shows and, and channels and platforms and, you know, whatever. And that lack of social, the lack of those social objects became something I think people began to feel intuitively, whilst at the same time, it became more and more expensive to achieve fame and scale and buy audiences directly. So, you know, famously, in media terms, you could reach three quarters of America with three spots in the 80s or whatever. And now you can't. <laughs> Not even close. Exactly. And that complexity and, and cost meant that being a filmmaker, and I, we've done some work with filmmakers before, studios, and the way they think about the way they used to think about products was very different. Every new film was a new product, a new launch, a new audience that you had to build in like three weeks. <laughs> Yeah. And that just became very inefficient, I think. And they realized, well, what has built an audience is sequels. Sure. Remakes, fine. But what's more satisfying than that? And I think Marvel were extraordinarily ambitious from the very outset with Iron Man, which was a huge gamble for a, you know, a publishing company to take on and pay for. Um, but once they did it and they set this framework in place, you begin to see everyone doing it. Um, DC is trying very hard and it's not necessarily working. But beyond that, they're, they're everywhere. You can see them everywhere, I think. You, have you, um, I just read an article today about Mr. Robot. Do you watch that? I, I did watch it. I haven't seen the most recent bits, I don't think. But first season I watched all the way through. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, the second one kind of is, it's, you brought up The Wire. I think it, later on it'll be looked at like the second season of The Wire. It takes you outside the story and then comes back in for season three, which was awesome. Okay, cool. Uh, but the the article was about how the writers fill the show with Easter eggs mm -hmm. and clues to a game that happens offline. And the fans of the show on a bunch of different chat, uh, chat rooms dedicated to the show and on Reddit, mm -hmm. through a bunch of subreddits, they actually try to break these codes that are hidden in the show and in fake advertisements that they sneak into the uh, advertising pods. Mm -hmm. So... I was thinking, number one, I love that. I don't try to crack the codes or anything, but just knowing that it exists and seeing something when I'm watching the show and going, oh, that's probably a code. I wonder what that, you know, what those guys would be doing with it. I think is very interesting and a new way to engage people and to help build interest in a mm -hmm. smaller universe. Yep. But I was wondering from you, do you, where do you think today, if you were an author or if you're Iger and you're trying to build the next universe, if you were trying to do it from scratch, mm. um, where's the best place to do it? It, it was comic books. Yep. And then it was television. You know, where, where do you think is the best way to capture a big audience and do that? That's a very, if you were, if it was your money. It's a very interesting idea. I, I think ultimately the, the medium from which it, it originates isn't as important as its ability to be, to your point, extensible and ideally have an audience already. That's the biggest challenge is building this audience from scratch now. The good thing about right. getting really passionate properties is that they come with this very passionate core audience. And depending on the size of that audience, um, I'm not, I mean, I, I watched the Percy Jackson films or a couple of them, but I didn't know it was a um, Harry Potter ripoff before that. I'm sure it was in book form. I, 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 right, think, yeah, I, I think it's more, there's different approaches to this, right? Different. So thinking about Iger, he recently pulled his content from Netflix, right? Uh, and, and the relationship between platform and distribution and content is increasingly blurry and, and has been for a while, right? What I thought was interesting about that particular announcement is that a week later, Netflix announced they bought Miller World. Are you, are you familiar with Miller World? I am. I haven't read any of the books, but I'm, I'm familiar with the, I know uh, so Mark, the author. Yeah, Mark Miller's kind of the most absurdly um, fecund 
uh, writer in comics. <laughs> like it, it's truly remarkable the amount of stuff that's come out of his head. Uh, you know, just as a smattering, the, the films like Wanted and Kick-Ass and Kingsman, all his ideas, right? But so was Civil War, a book he wrote while at Marvel, which became Captain America 2. And so was Old Man Logan, which is the movie Logan from last year. He wrote that too. Right. He's remarkably prolific and in a way that's been very hard to match. But strategically speaking, when Marvel pulled their content from Netflix, the immediate reaction less than a week later to sort of bolster the market's concern about that was acquiring a whole universe of IP with the same heritage and credibility as those Marvel properties because Miller was the executive creative consultant at Marvel for a long time. He was the same, it's the same voice. Yes, exactly. And he's very good at this sort of thing. And I just thought that's really interesting that they did it. They announced it, obviously been in works for a while, I guess, but they announced it that week specifically to allay concerns that they had lost access to a universe. Um, and so they bought, they bought one, you know? That's so interesting, that connection that you made, because... In a right now, I feel that the with the announcement of uh, Disney buying the Fox properties and all the universes yeah. that you just mentioned, I feel like it's such a corporate time. Mm-hmm. But, but when in doubt, the pendulum goes back to let's get the author who we know can turn out content that'll be that will turn into those universes. And Netflix has been doing that for five years, just giving yeah. artists the keys and just saying, "Hey, make something amazing and bring it to us." Yes, and I. So it would be great because, like, we can and talking about that part, right? The spinning off part, which is the same set of vectors that create the sort of um, conditions for universe strategy, if you like, <laughs> it is what allows Stranger Things to exist and get green, right, and, yeah, and get, exactly. and get greenlit by some two two kids that haven't made like more than one movie before or something. Get greenlit, and also they're so good at it, they built the universe from other people's universes, and then like kind of own it now they do, do an eight- they own the whole yeah. thing of the 80s. right exactly but like they genuinely like if you do anything in that reference set now you're pulling from duffer not directly from the 80s which is a remarkable achievement you know that that level yeah. of almost kind of i don't know reference apotheosis you know like i don't know no it's amazing because yeah. they try because um who was it uh, that who made super eight um, oh um abrams right yeah, yeah. So he made he made Super Eight, and that was the whole intention of that film was to steal from Spielberg. Right. And it it was an okay picture, but it didn't get it didn't become its own universe. There was never a call for a sequel. Right. Uh, but you're right. Stranger Things. When I watch that show, and I see the Evil Dead poster on the wall, or I see you know some the Ghostbusters costumes, mm-hmm. it, it's they take ownership of those things even you know they talk there's an episode where they have kentucky fried chicken and they're talking about <laughs> kentucky fried chicken yeah. and the ad that i remember from the 80s and i just think wow they they even own that and it's so nicely observed as well and it's also it doesn't struggle under the weight of its references because they're telling a different set of stories that just deploys lots of the same imagery and stuff you know be it et or otherwise i mean i, I think the ghostbusters movie that the remake with paul feig phage whatever his name is um was quite good, but I think it really struggled the most because it was trying to service too many references to itself. Right. Because it's, it's like right. it's trapped in a set of characters and jokes appearing from the first movie to give it, I don't know, some sort of credibility about being part of that universe. But at the same time, it doesn't extend it. It just tells the story again with some winks at the camera. And I, I think it struggled under that a little bit, to be honest. And that's that's the same thing I th- that separates Marvel and DC. Mm. Marvel, it, it feels that Marvel has more confidence in putting underused characters like Black Panther, who's a critical character in the greater Avengers universe in the comic books. Yeah. But in, in film, that would be a risk, going back to what you said about Iron Man. I mean, if Iron Man is a risk, who's one of their top-level heroes, yeah. then... Black Panther, I would never expect to get a film. But Marvel just keeps on putting these, just saying, we have great stories. Mm-hmm. Whereas DC suffers under the weight of saying, look, we're going to put Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman on one screen, and it's going to trust us, it's going to be great. But you could tell they don't believe it. Yeah. And I think, you know, there is a well documented split in the two universes that is usually expressed in terms of um, Marvel characters are broken. 
and uh, DC characters are all Greek gods, basically. Or like, they're all gods. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're all like Batman is. You can't empathize with Batman. You can be a, you admire him, and reading the Scott Snyder Batman stuff is he's amazing. But it's never going to be you. You're never going to be Superman. You're never going to be Batman. You're never going to be Wonder Woman. You know what I mean? They're all like the fantasies of children who are like, oh, maybe I was a, you know, maybe I'm an secretly adopted uh, wizard or princess or whatever. Whereas the Marvel right. superheroes all and become superheroes often from you know very traumatic social experiences or or things, right? And they all struggle. They all struggle with with their identity, with their responsibility, that with balancing their real life. Whereas, like Superman's real life is basically a joke, and do you know what I mean? Like, there's some sort of weird division in those two, in sort of the, the meta narrative, the meta myth structure of those two universes. No, I, I totally agree. And when, uh, for if we're going to go deep here on comic books, uh, so sorry to everybody listening, but <laughs> when when um, oh when Image came yeah. and all those creators left and they went to create their own superhero books that were sent a lot of them yeah. Rob Liefeld I'm looking at you yep. were copy paste of characters that they were already drawing yep. um, it, they kept that broken model nobody nobody went to the DC model except what was Supreme was a god but he was broken too yeah well, he, he was a policeman right and so he had to deal with like being a oh no not Supreme sorry that was the Savage Dragon yeah Supreme was the yeah the one um He's sort of kind of like Superman. Yeah, but he sort of became the progenitor of Invincible, and Invincible's a really good take on that superhero typology. And he did it by breaking him, though, by by yes. saying he's he's actually not, but underneath it all. And even Watchmen, I, they finally got it. DC, that was the first time they said, "Oh no, they're vulnerable." Yes, and that's huge. And now they've expanded that universe, and they're trying to have it. Um, there's a crossover, I guess, coming with the regular DC universe and Watchmen. Yeah. Alan Moore will be very unhappy about that. I assume he is kicking a garbage pail yeah. right now, wherever he is. Yeah, he's usually pretty unhappy about what happens to his characters though. So I don't blame him though. I don't blame him. But he it, should be protective of those. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But you're but like, yeah, it's, it's the, the, obviously stories require emotional resonance in some sense of identification. Otherwise it gets a bit tiresome. And I do think, I think there was a great shift towards, you know, in music idea of giving up your copyright when you record an album for a studio was default and then became a, an issue, right? With Prince famously being a slave. And the same thing happened with right. the, the comic book creators, right? They're creating characters and these ideas. They never owned anything. And that was a huge problem for Kirby and, and some of the other old um, first generation kind of creators. Cause they never got yeah, any- until Prince, until Prince used, uh, gave his rights for the Batman soundtrack. Ironically. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This conversation, yeah. Um, so, but that idea of, of owning your own creation, I think became a dominant thing in, to your point, the early 90s in different media, comics. Um, you know, when OK Computer came out, Radiohead wrote the sleeve note saying, thanks to, thanks to, I think it was Sony, our label for letting us use our music even though we wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> which was i think yeah, somebody gets it yeah and, and like you know again part of the drivers that allow for these things to happen now which is if you have an audience from pre-fragmentation culture you can now communicate with it directly and monetize your work without intermediaries and distribution mechanisms like record labels film studios publishing companies to some degree well you know you brought up radiohead and i know you didn't do that intentionally but even thinking about universes that's that is a group of artists that understands uh what did they do with um it was okay computer and um what's the album 10 years later in, that they used to create the the binary set in rainbows or yeah yeah i think it was and they and if you play the tracks alternating they left these little bridge these sound bridges in there that connect every song on those two albums that's that's also awesome. uh, I, I don't know that. if you've ever Oh, I'll add a link. I'll add a link. Yeah. But they were building a universe of their content and, and nobody even caught on to it. It was finally, they put out a release. It was like, I can't believe you guys haven't found this yet. That's so great. This idea that everything you make builds to something larger is it's inherently very satisfying. I don't know why to my brain, but it feels like not just my brain because it seems to be like across different media and kinds of creativity, this idea that rather than making one thing, make something that fits in and connects, you know? Like, so... In about 2000 and because Netflix, right? Netflix had a chance to be a Netflix universe, but it hasn't decided to do that yet. Anyway, we'll see what happens right. with Miller World. But it's 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 experimenting right. with different kinds of shows, right? 
So they don't all fit together and it's using its algorithmic insight and so on and so forth to try and work out what shows will suit its audience and keep them locked in. I understand that as their strategy. But um, we were working with NBC when I was at Naked in like 2008, maybe 2009 in that region on their rebrand uh, or a one of their many rebrands. And right. I asked NBC what, you know, what their acquisition strategy was um, for content. And they said, we try and pick things that will be successful. And I said, that's not very strategic, <laughs> though, is it? Um, what's the filter? Um, and I gave them two thoughts. Um, I assume they ignored both of them. I, I left the agency shortly after this. But the first thought was, well, there are mass broadcasters that have a remit to be very broad, not to be a niche channel like, you know, Characters Welcome on USA Today or the Comedy Channel, whatever. That are broad but they have a, a remit. And so Channel 4 in the UK is not a universe, but Channel 4 content all fits together under their remit to service underserviced audiences. The government, whilst it's a commercial channel, the government still owns it, and therefore it has a mandate to serve underserved audiences, be it minorities of different kinds, sexuality, race, whatever. And so with that remit, you can get a sense of cohesion in their properties, right? At least mm, that makes sense. until they bought the Great British Bake Off and all bets are off now, let's be honest, right? <laughs> the other thought was well the nbc nbc had was running at the time some super bowl spots right or the time that around that time and um the spots were promoting their own lineup and maybe it was on maybe super bowl's on nbc then i have no idea i can't remember but the the the, the ads had different characters from like scrubs and different shows meeting each other and like you know in sort of tableau style 15 second stings you know and I was like, that's pretty cool. That's like an NBC universe. That was the idea I pitched them. Because I was like, remember when Friends was quite like a big deal? And the Friends universe sort of was constrained to Friends, but extended out into games and coffee mugs and T-shirts and stores and experiences because it was that bigger show, you know? Right. It was everywhere. Yeah. Uh, like, it was hard to... Yeah, 1999, well, that's all the time. But there was a character in it called Ursula who was Phoebe's sister right? Her twin sister. <laughs> How geeky do you want to get? Anyway, so... She, no, she, dude, I, I'm so sad because I know exactly right? what you're going to exactly, say because I remember right? all this so she too. Was yeah. the, she was the same actress, obviously, but she was playing the different NBC sitcom before and they pulled the character into Friends and that would be her twin sister, Ursula. Right? Yeah, yeah. and what was she from? Mad About yeah, You. Yeah, Mad About You. Yeah, yeah. Previously, they're big, they're one of their big Paul Rice's vehicle, whatever, right? So I was like... What would be kind of cool, like in those Super Bowl spots you made, if your shows existed all in the same universe? Because they already kind of do, and everyone likes it when Ursula appears because it pays off the people who know, and it doesn't detract yeah. from people who, doesn't, who don't know. You know, you can work on these different levels. Um, they did do a night where, with all the shows that were on that night, it was like Seinfeld, Friends, Mad About You, and I think the other one was called... Oh God! If I the single guy, maybe they did a blackout night where right. there was a blackout in New York, and all the characters had a story that all the shows had a story where the characters got stuck in a blackout. Yeah, that's cool. And the New York blackout was a big thing, so it makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it made sense. Yeah, no, it's, and that, I think that kind of thing was really cool. Um, I just think it's it's accretive, right? Everything you do builds to a larger experience and pays off some things and doesn't to others, rather than starting from scratch each time, which, which you know. It's harder, I think. Well, it also makes sense when I can do when I can bite off thirty minute chunks yeah. in a sitcom versus, or even a two hour movie every year, versus uh, you know having to go back and collect twenty trade paperbacks of X Men yeah. to understand, or like go find the original X Factor stories to understand what's <laughs> going to happen in the next X Men movie. Right, and and there's something vaguely. I mean, I used to be when the first set of Marvel films come out. My, my geekiness was in full swing and I'd be like, this is what happens here. That's that character. And then, and pretty quickly, uh, well, in a few years, I begin to let go. And now I don't really want to remember if this is exactly right in canon or if that character there is being used properly or whatever. Like, I, I think it's a, a different thing now and I've sort of let that rescind slightly. But in its own universe, it should be accretive and satisfying rather than uh, onerous. You don't want to give yeah, your audience a job, you know. You don't want to give your audience a, I agree. a chore. Let's just enjoy the the uh, the movies for what they are, and then if I want to go back and read the comic books and compare notes, I guess I could. But yeah. I probably won't. No, I, I think that's okay. I think 
the, I like stories that are retold in fresh new ways in order to move them forward, right? So a, a good example of this to get back to Star Wars, I suppose, I think anyway, is the difference between Rogue One and the first of the new Star Wars, the name I can't remember, the one with Ray in it. Oh, uh, yeah, the, the Force Awakens. Right, okay. So The Force Awakens is J.J. Abrahams remaking A New Hope, almost scene for scene, with a, fe- right. with a female protagonist, and it's brilliant, right? It's great. It's taking the myth structure, telling it again for a whole new generation, but with a female protagonist, which is necessary at this stage in its evolution, frankly, and it's a great movie, and Ray is a really cool character, and all that stuff is great. And it, But it's, it's not homage. It does take the same storyline... Um, but it does retell it rather than just um, tell it again, if that makes sense. It makes sense. And, and the yeah. distinction is, is nuanced. I accept this, but I do think there is a difference. Whereas Rogue One, right? Rogue One, I've not seen the new one, as I said, but Rogue One is probably my favorite Star Wars film as a film. Upon, upon watching it, I was blown away by how well they had done what they did. Yeah, I agree. As a story, it's beautiful and self-contained. It's dramatic. It's... But it's also, uh, they sort of disguised this in the promotions, didn't they? No one really, didn't really know it was going to be a prequel to, to 4, to New Hope. No, no, in fact, they said it's not yeah. until I was sitting in the theater and I said, well, wait a minute, I know that guy and I've seen that person and I remember that ship and I know that. Yeah, and so uh, as a film, I think it's my favorite, but it's also kind of this apotheosis of like sort of almost toxic nostalgia. Because the film is contained entirely in the symbolism, imagery, and timeline of a pre-existing narrative structure. And so you know what's going to happen. What has to happen is the war has to come, right? Otherwise, nothing else would make sense. So you know a lot of those things. And it it kind of, it's like this weird example of a a fan fiction homage movie becoming part of canon. Like the sort of ultimate, (laughs) the ultimate desire of fan fiction is to be canon, right? Kind of. Um, or to do things you couldn't do in canon, like get people to hook up or whatever it's, that, that thing is called. But to me, Rogue One is a particularly <laughs> weird example of like it's fan fiction, but it's also not. And I, yeah, it, it doesn't move the story on in any way. It kind of just builds some backstory. I don't know. But it's somehow, but it's somehow more, satisfying. more satisfying. As a film, yes, because it's self-contained in that sense, which maybe speaks right. against the whole yeah, universe. That's right. And I watched it again just on Netflix not too long ago. And so it's somewhat fresh in my mind, as, as fresh as my mind gets. And I was watching it to see, okay, now let's pretend I've never seen the other movies. What, you know, is there anything in here I'm, I, that wouldn't connect for me or that I missed? Mm. And watching it that way and just trying to close, make myself close doors to Star Wars and to the, the greater universe, it's still a good movie. There's yes. not things in there that you needed to know. And in some ways... It's like how um, the difference between Star Trek TNG and DS9, right? So TNG exists in the universe, but every episode is self-contained narrative, give or take a couple of double episodes, right? So you can watch one and it's like the whole emotional arc of that story is completed, wrapped up, and you go to credits, right? Whereas the DS9 stuff, it ended up being much more like kind of expansive, multilinear. Things went on and on and on and on, and, and that was much harder to follow unless you really wanted to be hardcore so there's there's room for both you know there's room for the self-contained nuggets of narrative in these universes yeah. people love and that's kind of where where uh things like um lord of the rings trilogy went astray when they had a cliffhanger where the the company just well we're now we're all going to walk this way and you know the movie ends and you say well hold on a minute <laughs> This is that you didn't finish this story. I mean, I, what, what's going on? They're just going to walk off like that and we don't know what's going to happen. Well, it's a trilogy. So it, it's a part connects to this bigger universe. And I'm like, yeah, but I only paid for this part of it. I only paid for act two. So why am I getting left with the middle of the story? Yeah, you still right. have to make it have a close with Marvel does in space. Yes. Agreed. Uh, you're really, yes. Like the film and also the Hobbit two part of as well. The Hobbit that goes on forever, that movie. And it doesn't, it doesn't, oh, yeah, they, they could have done that in an very, hour. Very, very easily. And, and it's slightly because they got such success with the, the three that they wanted to do it that way, I guess. But that, sure. that structural thing is the hard bit, right? If you're a story uh, showrunner or like um, Paul Fage at Marvel, who kind of owns the overall universe for them, giving people the, the, the it's, like a, it's like writing a good brief, right? It's like giving people enough parameters to keep them in line but giving them the freedom to write something really beautiful inside that 
rather than saying you've got to get to yeah. these points, you know? Um, yeah, you still have to give, even when, when the best uh, directors for improv will give, give their talent the beats. Hey, you can say whatever you want, but I need you to eventually to get to this part of the story. Right. You have to, this is your motivation. Yeah. You've heard about you, uh, curb your enthusiasm in that same way. Yeah. And you can definitely see how that can be a, f- uh, highly, um, abrasive or difficult creative relationship from all the Marvel directors that get removed from their movies. Right. Cause ultimately like the vision has to fit into this overall architecture or it won't work. But at the same time, if all it does is pay off the beats you need to pay off, it won't be a film. Right. It's nothing interesting about it. Right. And then your Lord of the Rings thing, right? Did you see recently, I think Amazon is going to buy, is, is buying Lord of the I Rings. Did, yeah. So like, I couldn't get my head around that for a second. I was like, I'm really, I don't have any appetite left for Lord of the Ringsness at all, personally. Um, Same. And then someone said, well, what if it isn't Lord of the Rings, though? It's just that universe and you can tell whatever story you want. And I was like, all right, well, fair enough. Yeah, I suppose you could do that. You know, I, that hadn't occurred to me. So that's good. I'm still, yeah, it's going to be a tough sell for me. I'm but just, I, I, I'm really- I guess that I'm sure that's- Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because we're different kinds of fandoms, right? The, the fantasy fandom is very specific i guess um but i just I think I so. thought that was boring whereas conversely i saw an announcement last week i think that um the archie universe is being developed more fully oh you sent, oh, you sent me this link yeah right. just, do tell. yeah so um i haven't seen riverdale so again forgive me for my lack of um preparation but apparently it's very interesting and you know a dark modern interpretation on archie is kind of very saccharine childish stuff right but the bit, in fact, this is what led us to some degree to this topic beyond just talking about Star Wars because it's fun, is that, that the guy who uh, runs Archie Comics is also the producer of Riverdale. And he's sort of gone out and said they're going to try and move into this whole empire and this whole universe, including Sabrina the Teenage Witch, who is an Archie character, um, yeah. and uh, Melissa Joan Hart being brilliant. But they want to make it dark and modern and stuff, which is cool. <laughs> She was great, though. Right? Great show. Um, and, and the fact that the universe, they have this body of IP, right? There's like the Josie and the Pussycats. There's, I think, Casper. There's all kinds of superheroes in the Archie universe that no one's ever heard of. Um, so they're like, they're very consciously saying, let's, this is works. Let's, let's, let's go for it, you know? I think they're picking up exactly what you're talking about. It's just how, we know that this works to get eyeballs. And if, yeah. if we get 10% of the people who watch Riverdale to watch this other show, plus a new audience, we've won. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I, I think it's become more obviously the, the dominant like creative strategy du jour, right? It works on the model of Star Wars that you can sell toys and comics and ancillary, whatever, licensing rights to craft cheese doodles and you know, whatever. <laughs> once you've got the characters, <laughs> once, it, once the characters have enough audience, then you can sell it in lots of different ways, which is a hugely useful commercial strategy. And then in terms of the products themselves, you can then, you know, move from audience to audience and carry them over as much as possible. But it also means to me That's that once, it, once, anything, once anything becomes the default or the orthodoxy, then we've got to start looking for the next idea, right? So that's... <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think we could do another show about that, about that topic. But what do we think is the next thing, unless you're writing a book on that, right? I'm now. not, but I have been thinking about it and I don't have strong ideas yet. So let's, let's bounce it off and then, um, oh, let's get together when I'm, uh, when we're in the same city. Should that happen? Yeah. I'd love to talk over a pint. That, that would be lovely. I would very much enjoy that. Hey, before I let you go, two questions. Yes. First, um, we've gone way over time here, but that's okay. It's great. Right. It's great conversation. First question is, do you think any X-Men will make an appearance now in the upcoming uh, Infinity Wars? Uh, the most, what, when's the next one due out? This year, next year? No, this year, right? I think early 2018, I think. <laughs> I think that would be tight, to be honest. Yeah. Do you think even like a post credit scene with Wolverine walking I mean, into the that frame? Would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. Um, let's say right. it would be a I mean, great right. Easter egg, I think, but like, I don't know if even the acquisition would be, you know, ratified or whatever by that point so maybe i think let's let's say maybe okay and then question two is a much easier question that takes much less uh, mental capacity what uh what do you have coming up that you'd like to tell our listeners about anything you want to promote uh well it's a great question um i am currently working on some things for clients that i can't promote because there's no point but rosie and i are probably <laughs> going to publish some new things this year um uh 
some new elements of first the book paid attention, some new thoughts around maybe not quite a sequel, but some other publications. But um, the thing right now I'd love you all to rush to and look at is called Postcards for Progress. Um, so Tell me more. through our newsletter and on our website, we crowdsourced designs from our designy friends. And they, every designer who um, put a design in place got to pick a, a cause that they wanted to donate the profits to. And so you can buy postcards on our website at geniusdeals.co slash postcards dash four dash progress. And all the profits go to the causes nominated by each designer. And we have donated the fulfillment and they'll be coming out in January. Oh, that's awesome. I will include a link to that in dude, the, the show notes here because, cool. dude, that's so, that's so great. What kind of causes it's are pretty you much all, uh, all representing? idea, but there's some uh, – actually, interestingly, the designers have picked quite a lot of smaller causes, which is kind of cool. Um, things that we hadn't heard of, which is kind of a nice one. I'll give you a couple of examples. There is um, – the <laughs> there's a – the Black Youth Project, a.k.a. BYP100, which helps train, organize, and mobilize um, young black activists. There is um, the Zen Peacemakers. The three tenets of that cause are not knowing, bearing witness, and compassionate action. And they're a movement for peaceful but potent social activism. Um, we have one for Phone Credit for Refugees, which provides mobile phone top-ups with asylum seekers and refugees separated from their families by war and conflict. Yeah, they're all... Actually, the causes are really interesting. That's one of the things that they're not the obvious. Like we, we did some fundraising for the Brady campaign last weekend at an event we were hosting. And that was great. But it feels like these smaller um, causes, more local, more specific, get more emotional resonance from people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. That's an awesome program. And again, we'll link Lovely. to it. Well, thank you um, so much. Ferris, I want to thank you so much for making time. I know you're usually in an airport or heading to or from one. So thank you for making time for this. I really enjoyed talking to you. Me too. Thank you for letting me geek out. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was fun. That was fun. So as always, guys, uh, you can find Ferris. Ferris, what's your, are you just at Ferris on uh, Twitter? Yeah, at Ferris, F-A-R-I-S on Twitter. That's the easiest way to find me. I think he has almost all the Twitter users following him anyway. (laughs) But if you're not, you should, you should track him down. Uh, If you have thoughts for me, you yeah, you can also hit me up at, at APierno um, or at Sandy Integrated. Uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening. Please uh, let us know what you think. Bye.